Shalom and welcome to Jewish Boston's The Vibe of the Tribe podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Ansvin, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dan Seligson. Hi, Dan. Hey, Miriam. I really love our new theme song. It makes me feel important. Yeah, I love it too. A little bit of background about our great new podcast music for our listeners. We really wanted to capture the vibe of this particular tribe and showcase music rooted in the Jewish experiences across the diaspora. Our composer Ryan J. Sullivan did a phenomenal job in blending klezmer music and Yemenite instrumentation to highlight the beautiful diversity of history, culture, and experience within the Jewish people. So thank you to Ryan for this wonderful new music. Awesome. Okay, so now on to today's very important issue we're talking about. Um, We're joined on the podcast by Rabbi Becky Silverstein, who serves on the board of Keshet and as the rabbi-in-residence for Keshet's LGBTQ plus ally teen Shabbatonim. Keshet, headquartered in Boston, is a national organization that works for full LGBT equality and inclusion in Jewish life. Rabbi Becky also serves as program manager and co-teacher at the Boston Teen Beit Midrash. He lives in Jamaica Plain with his spouse, Naomi. Rabbi Becky, thank you so much for joining us today. Sure, glad to be here. So I'd like to start today talking a little bit about your own personal journey because I think that's really important to understanding the larger context that we're going to be discussing today. I'm happy to start there. Usually when I tell my story, um, I'm, I make sure to emphasize that my coming out story, my coming to understand my sexual identity and my gender identity is actually fairly intertwined with coming to understand my Jewish identity. And I like to emphasize that right off the bat because I think it's a unique experience for, for folks that often religion uh, creates tension for them when they come out as as lesbian or gay or bisexual or trans. Uh, and for me, that hasn't been the case. So I came out uh, as a lesbian in my first year of college, my first semester, actually. Um, and I came out within the, within the community of Smith College's Hillel with a group of other lesbian-identified Jews. Western Mass. <laughs> exactly. Yep, the Happy Valley, uh, my home away from home. So I came out with this into this community of folks of women who loved other women uh, and really got to flourish uh, and experience Shabbat dinners where my identity as a lesbian was part and parcel of what we were doing. Sometimes it was celebrated, right? Like when I brought my girlfriend and things like that, but it was never denigrated and often just sort of fit into the seams of what was happening. Um, I came out as trans in the beginning of my rabbinical school uh, experience. So my rabbinical school cohort, I was ordained at Hebrew College in 2014, uh, also included Rabbi Ari Lev Fornari. Uh, Rabbi Fornari is another trans rabbi. Uh, he serves now at Colt Sedek in Philadelphia and happens to be someone who I grew up with, um, which is a joy. I, everybody should get to go to rabbinical school with the person who they were co-presidents of their high school youth group with. Um, and in the beginning of our rabbinical school time, we had a class conversation about what it would mean to have someone who is trans identified in our cohort, what it would mean to be a cohort of folks who really wanted to center uh, a feminist pedagogy um, and hear the voices of women, um, really of folks of all genders. And in that conversation, I heard the term genderqueer for the first time. So some trans folks get a sense that there's something not quite right in their daily experience and do a deep dive in the internet. Um, That wasn't me. Uh, I had this sense growing up that I wasn't really a girl, but I wasn't really a boy. And as I grew up, that the 
the titles man and woman or the identities man and women didn't quite um, fit, that those weren't boxes that I felt fully comfortable with, but it didn't really have uh, a word to describe it and never really spent much time thinking about it or really just sort of felt it. Um, but when I heard this word genderqueer, I was like, oh, actually that's me, right? So what does genderqueer mean? Uh, it means someone who is neither a man nor a woman um, and really someone who stands outside of the gender binary. It is in some ways uh, a synonym for non-binary, which is another term that some of your listeners may have heard, um, or gender fluid or gender creative. Um, all of these terms have slightly different nuances, but they cover let's, roughly like 75% of, um, of the same material. So I came out uh, to my rabbinical school class and within a small group of queer Jewish professionals uh, who live in Jamaica Plain, many of whom either still work at Keshet or used to work at Keshet, uh, and that community, that JP Jewish queer community, really was the place where I experimented with different pronouns, um, with just simply saying out loud that I identify as genderqueer, um, with dating, with thinking about the implications of being trans in the world. Um, I started using he, him pronouns after my year in Israel, so my second to last year in rabbinical school. And when I was at Ordains, I changed my Hebrew name to Ezra Natan. Um, and I decided that I was going to go into my interviews uh, knowing that I used he, him pronouns and fully out. And, you know, roughly almost five years later, so four and a half years later, approaching interviews, I decided that I was going to be fully out as a genderqueer rabbi, um, that I would share with folks my pronouns on phone interviews, and that whenever I had the opportunity to do interviews, I would create space for folks to talk about my identity. Uh, and so far, that's been a pretty successful uh, approach for for me. So it's fascinating to hear that that Judaism was part of the vehicle that helped you to you know, realize and recognize and, and kind of celebrate your, your full self. And now you're helping other people do the same via the same avenue of, of religion. That's fascinating to me because uh, so often in this space, religion seems to be um, not the enemy, but religion seems to be inflexible and, you know, to kind of oppressive at right. times. I mean, I used to say that it was easier to come out uh, as a lesbian when I was identifying as a lesbian in Jewish spaces than it was to go out into a lesbian bar and tell people that I wanted to be a rabbi. Oh. Fascinating. Wow. <laughs> so how are you kind of channeling your experience into the work that you're doing in the community? So um, that's a great question. Much of the work that I do in the community on a regular basis is interacting with young people, mostly with high school students, um, with some late middle schoolers in there as well. Uh, and really, that work to me is an expression of sharing my full self in whatever it is that I'm doing. So if I'm at, the, at Teen Bait Midrash, we're not talking specifically about gender or about who I am as a trans person. Uh, but it's a space where I'm out, where folks know what my pronouns are, where they've maybe read some of the stuff that I've written, where they ask questions and I answer them. And so there, the Beit Midrash really becomes just the location of those conversations. Sometimes the Talmud is the spark for them, uh, but often it's really just the space. When I'm at the Shabbatonim with Keshet, we're really explicitly talking about the overlap of these identities and what it means to be LGBTQ identified or an ally in a Jewish space. And what is a Shabbatonim? I'm sorry, I didn't. I have no idea. Yeah, no worries. Uh, so five times a year this year, five times this year and six times next year, we take a group of young folks away for a weekend. 
um, from Friday afternoon through Sunday morning. We go to uh, a retreat center, celebrate Shabbat, um, learn together in workshops, sometimes that the students put together and sometimes that the staff put together, and have the opportunity and space to talk about what it's like to be LGBTQ identified in the world uh, and in the Jewish community. So focusing, you know, really on the the Jewish aspect of this, what is your opinion about or your, your views on what Jewish thought and uh, texts teach us about the importance of inclusion? Yeah, so Jewish texts in general put a put a, put a lot of energy towards treating people with dignity. And, and recognizing people's inherent dignity, both uh, from the beginning of creation and in saying that we're all created in God's image, right? And we, we learn that male and female, God created them, and the rabbis teach us that, that them can be interpreted in any number of ways um, as a creature that extended throughout, through, across from one edge of the world to the other, for example. So this all-encompassing entity um, that includes each and every one, each and every one of us. So we get the seed uh, of respecting people's dignity right there in Genesis. And then the, our tradition starts to tell us how to put that into practice by not oppressing the stranger or the widow, by leaving uh, the corners of your fields open for folks who are hungry to come and eat. Right? These, right. Are, these are actions that we do to really demonstrate this idea. Um, and then, the, then our text tells us one of my favorite pieces at least to look at when I'm thinking about inclusion is this is a statement that one should not separate themselves from the community mm-hmm. and I love that sentence that statement because to me it really think it really evokes the picture of folks on on all sides of what the community means right that I have an obligation not to separate from the community that the community has an obligation to create space for me to be in it and to make sure that they're not putting up ob- obstacles to my participation um, but that everybody really needs to be putting in effort here. And I recognize when I say that, that some folks sometimes interpret that as uh, putting the weight of the work on the folks who are not being unclu- included, on the queer folks, right, on folks with disabilities, um, on, on Jews of color. And I want to be clear that I, that's actually not what, what I mean to be doing, right? I do mean to be saying to those folks, it's really hard sometimes, and we need to hang in there. And to the community, we, you need to be doing the work. I'm part of that community. We need to be doing the work to, to taking away the obstacles to allowing folks to be present, to allowing folks to understand and to feel like their inherent dignity is being respected and, in fact, being elevated. Right. Um, that all folks are really getting the message that they are worthy of being a member of the community, that they are worthy of love, that they are worthy of um, attention, and that they're worthy of the best of what the world or what the Jewish community has to offer. I mean, we were all at Sinai. That's what they say. So we were right. all there. That's what they say. Not only not only were we all at Sinai, but but that we all received at Sinai what we could what right. we could absorb. Exactly. Right. That Sinai was a was a very much an individualized experience, uh, and that you know if God and the angels or whoever else was at Sinai mm-hmm. bringing Torah down from the top of the mountain mm-hmm. to our mouths was able to create a Jewish tradition that was accessible to all of us, it is imperative that we do the same. Amen. So in July of 2016, uh, Massachusetts enacted a milestone transgender rights law providing protections from discrimination for trans folk. 
Can you tell us about how you felt about that important victory at the time? When this trans- when the transgender rights law was passed, I was living in California, so I had some physical distance from from the actual passage of the law. So I don't quite remember hmm. a, such a visceral feeling. I, I remember taking note of it, right, and sort of having a sigh of relief that Massachusetts had stepped up in that way. I really remember when the Non-Discriminations Act was passed originally and trans accommodations was taken out of the, mm. taken out of it because I was in Israel uh, studying as part of my rabbinical school training uh, and Keshet was there doing an LGBTQ trip. And so I actually was on a bus um, somewhere in Israel sitting next to Adi Klein, the executive director of Keshet, when we found out that the non-discrimination bill had passed and that trans accommodations had been taken out. And for me, in my own personal journey, that was a moment where I was still uh, still discerning mm. who I was. I mean, my journey of discernment continues, but it really was a pivotal moment for me. And so I remember just feeling unsure and feeling upset that anything had been taken out, yeah. um, but not really knowing how to integrate that with my burgeoning sense of self. Um, and so one of the things that I fear uh, about this coming this coming election is that if if the ballot initiative does not pass, if transgender rights are not upheld, that folks who are in that position of discerning who they are will somehow will have another obstacle, right, mm-hmm. to coming out. Will have another obstacle to really understanding that this world should be a world where they can step fully into themselves. So, just to step back for a minute, sure. the. Uh, ballot question that you were referring to. On November 6th, Massachusetts residents will vote on ballot question number three, which is a referendum on a 2016 law. Uh, I'm curious how this ended up being on the ballot in November, uh, because I thought that this was settled law. So after how did the the question of how this got onto the ballot is one that I've been asked a lot over the last few weeks, because uh, folks generally aren't aware that it's on the ballot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when they are made aware, usually are like, what is it? What, what's up with right. that? Right? Why like, are we this? affirming this is absurd. something that was affirmed right. two right. years ago? We've already done this. Right. And uh, the answer is that when this, when the law was passed two years ago, folks who, who were against trans rights in public spaces immediately started organizing to ha- get it on the ballot. Right. We have a system that says if you want that allows folks to put ballot questions up on the ballot by gaining a certain number of signatures. And they were successful in that. Why Massachusetts and why here? Um, in part because Massachusetts is a litmus test for the rest of the country. Mm. That what, what happens here, right, as with gay marriage, for example, what happens here is really a question is really a test place for what could happen everywhere else. And so folks are putting energy and money and resources generally into Massachusetts because if they can repeal right, for the first time, repeal rights um, here, then they can do it in other places in the country. And so the, the answer really is because there are folks in this world who don't believe that I and other trans people should be able to exist in, the, in public space and are trying to make that point. So when I look at other ballot questions, for example, one, and I see yes on one, nurses say yes on one, nurses say no on one, I see this... <laughs> I don't know what to do. <laughs> totally. it's a very, that's a very confusing issue, and I'm not going to get into it at all today. This one seems very clear. Mm. A yes vote keeps in place the current law that prohibits discrimination on the basis of gender identity. A no vote would repeal this provision of the public accommodation law. So 
there are serious implications to this law. What the repeal would have serious implications for a trans person living in Massachusetts. What what impact, for example, would it have on you and and people that you know? Right. First, let's just be clear. Right. What you just said is is very clear. But still, we want folks to vote yes on three. Um, so when you go to the ballot box, I had to have box, you say that. I right, <laughs> that's fine. But when you go to the ballot <laughs> box, right, I want you to vote yes on three. Yes to uphold, uh, yes to uphold my right to exist in the public sphere. So what does that mean, right? What are public accommodations? Public accommodations are places where we go every day. They are post office square that I walked through to get to this building. They are uh, the orange line that I took to get here from Jamaica Plain. The movie theater where I might go see a movie if that was my jam, right? Um, Restaurants, parks, hospitals, Mm. right? And what this bill says that we're trying to uphold is that I cannot be kicked out of those spaces for being transgender. So if the bill is repealed, um, what that means is that someone could theoretically say to me, oh, you're trans. And look, not to me, right? It feels unlikely that it would be to me, although I harbor personally some anxiety and some, on some level, some existential discomfort is an understatement. Just some underlying anxiety around what that would mean for my life walking through, right? But for folks who are, um, you know, for trans women who bear the brunt of not only transphobia, but also misogyny, for trans folks of color who live at the intersection of transphobia and racism, and for me, possibly, um, that someone could look at me and say, I don't want you in my restaurant, leave, right? That date night could turn into really quite a, a trying episode. And perhaps not even date night, right? That I could go into an emergency room and fear that I wouldn't get the medical help that I need because someone would look at me and say, oh, you're trans, I don't like you, right? Or I don't believe that trans folks exist. Uh, What you're doing is unnatural, so please, so you have to leave. Um, Or that a day in the park with my friends could mean, you know, a potentially humiliating experience of being, you know, told that I can't play catch in Franklin Park or wherever else. So what do you know about the groups that oppose question three? Because I don't know anything about it. I mean, I've read a little bit about these groups that are called Focus on the Family, Family, blah, blah, blah. A lot of the word family in there, but I don't know any families who oppose <laughs> question three. So I, who are these families and where are they coming from? So the truth is that I don't know I don't know much about them. What I do know is that their objections tend to be based in a fundamental understanding of religion uh, and also in fear, right? And that they, the the fear is what they really um, latch onto in responding to these in putting up these ballot initiatives and then in trying to get people to vote no. Um, so, for example, the opposition has put out ads uh, here in Massachusetts that show a trans woman entering a woman's bathroom and say saying that transgender accommodations allow men to, ans- to enter women's rooms and increase the likelihood of your of your small child or you being sexually assaulted right and i put this out there because folks need to know that when they see these videos they're patently false on several several different levels there's, there's no yeah. data backing anything right well first of that. all right okay. it's not it's not men going into women's bathrooms trans women That's are women right. That's Which right. is a fairly, you know, is is some somehow a fairly radical statement to say mm-hmm. some in some different places. But it's a it's a woman going into a woman's room. Second, there's absolutely no doubt da- there there have been no reported instant instances of trans women doing harm in women's rooms. Third, 
it is trans people themselves who are most likely to be assault, who have a higher rate of assault. And so the coalition of folks, while I can't speak that much for the folks who, who want you to vote no, the coalition of folks who want you to vote yes on three, that coalition that includes Keshet and other religious organizations, also includes folks, organizations who stand up against sexual assault, mm-hmm. like, like BARC, right, the Boston Area Rape Crisis Center, for right. example. Um, and people in faith, faith people in faith-based organizations who say, actually, this is not what our traditions teach us, right? Our traditions teach us that we need to create a society that tell that gives people the message that they are that they are worthy of of their dignity being upheld. And just a just a quick reminder, I know we're talking about like a lot of this comes from a basis in religious fear. Um, you know, we did a podcast episode a little while ago for Pride Month about how, you know, Judaism recognizes six different genders. So before, you know, anyone comes at this with an attitude of, well, religion stands for one thing and everybody else stands for something else, really investigate, you know, what Judaism has to say about gender identity and inclusion before making that call from um, just like a, pa- a place of maybe not understanding that, that the Jewish tradition and experience is wider than many people necessarily imagine or know. So that's, that's really important. Right. It's very difficult to say what Judaism thinks about any number of topics. That's right. Right? That's the actually one of the... is right, the unimaginable. Depth, absolutely. And it's one of the things that makes, to me, that makes Judaism such a beautiful uh, religious tradition to yeah. be a part of, is that we have this multivocal tradition and that we have a tradition that actually upholds human dignity above many things, right? Yeah. A- above almost everything. I'm at, in this moment, I can't think of anything. But given that this is a podcast and folks are going to be listening to it, <laughs> I'm sure there's there's a moment there there are things, um, and so we shouldn't be dismissive um, of religion, or we shouldn't listen to folks who co-opt um, our right. religious texts. Uh, or religious texts that we share with them, mm-hmm. uh, if they aren't Jews, to say that being transgender is amoral, that transgender is a-religious, or the sim- or uh, similar sentiments. That's right. That's a very, very narrow reading of an immense, immense question and an immense um, topic that's been debated since you know, you know, this religion has been around for thousands and thousands of years. So there's a real depth to the opinions on on this and and every other topic under the sun. Mm-hmm. So I wanna go back to, you mentioned just briefly, um, what Keshet and its partner organizations are doing to respond to this ballot initiative. Can you go into that and tell us, you know, what's being done, what's being organized? Yeah, sure. I mean, Dan, you mentioned it earlier around uh, awareness of the campaign, that this camp- that folks don't know that the, don't know that the campaign is out there. And so much, much, of, much of what is happening is about public education. Mm-hmm. So Freedom for All Massachusetts started mid-spring or early spring um, with phone banking, um, for example, to get some supporters in to volunteer, but also to start letting people know that this was gonna, that this was coming out. And so actually mostly what folks are doing is phone banking, canvassing, going that, the, the really, you know, exciting work of going door to door that sometimes is boring, no one home, no one home, no one home, interrupted by that one fantastic conversation. Um, folks are writing op-eds, uh, politicians, the, the coalition is working to get politicians who are running to endorse, mm-hmm. all to raise the profile uh, of, of yes on three. They also are, you know, collecting money, 
these days to put out our own video. And actually the first internet video uh, just came out last week so that we can start spreading some sort of a message in opposition to the opposition's message. Yeah. Um, so Keshet in particular had a successful canvassing day this past weekend. Um, I think it was 41 people, something like 700 doors knocked on and 200 conversations. Oh. Don't quote me on those numbers. They're on Keshet's Facebook page if you're interested. Uh, and Keshet, along with Freedom for All Massachusetts, will be participating in a Get Out the Vote uh, canvassing day on November 4th. This is uh, this bill, this legislation was signed by a Republican governor in 2016. So to me, this is nonpartisan, but do you know if there's been any support politically from either political party, formally or informally? The answer to that question is yes. Um, I don't know if the, the Democratic parties in the state have, have, have endorsed it or not, but I do know that both Ayanna Presley and Rachel Rollins, for example, have come out in favor uh, that, that Joe Kennedy spoke at the Yes on Three rally. Um, so there are... There is there are partisan folks coming out in favor. Um, I only, to be honest, I know those folks because they're in my political wheelhouse, uh, if you will. Um, I don't know what the what other folks have come out, but that full list can be found on Freedom for All Massachusetts website. Thank you. How have personal stories played a role in impacting public perception of this issue? Because I I know for a fact that until you have met somebody who is trans or have that experience you only have a theoretical understanding of what this kind of uh, legislation would impact in their lives. And you can kind of be like, well, I don't really know who this affects. I don't know. But it's so important in my mind to, you know, face to face, know someone's story. And do you think that's been really, that's been helpful in changing minds? Yeah, absolutely. Personal stories are the things that move people from this theoretical, I respect everybody's inherent dignity mm -hmm. to the to the action-based, here are things I'm going to do to make sure their dignity is being upheld. Right. Right. Meeting a trans person is what moves someone from, of course, trans women are women, where of course, trans folks should have rights to I'm actually gonna make a plan to go vote for their rights. I'm going to volunteer at a phone bank. Um, and for folks who feel less sure even, right? Folks who are like, I don't quite understand what being trans means. I don't understand that experience. Meeting a trans person may or may not help them understand better, but it will give them a face to say, well, I don't understand, but this is a nice person in front of me yeah. who is spending their time helping me try to understand and who I've connected with on some human level. And so I can put my lack of understanding aside. I might even be able to put, put aside something that I've heard a pastor or a rabbi say, or a big question I have about my own religious beliefs to say, this person is someone who is a human. And so I'm gonna go vote yes on three um, because, they're, because of this one human person. And the way we humanize is by telling stories. That yeah. is the best way to convince someone that I'm a human, right? Yes. Is to tell them who I am as a person. So I'm holding this postcard uh, that Keshet was distributing probably during some of those door-to-doors. If you didn't find someone, it says, another Jew for transgender equality, vote yes on three. And then a quote from Pierre Kea Vote, beloved is humanity that we are made in God's image. And I think that's, you know, it, that's a great inspirational message for a Jewish voter, say, you know, who's wondering, what does my faith tell me about this question? Uh, are there some other... Jewish, Jewishly inspired quotes you might have for us or texts that, that might, you know, sway a, a voter who is 
Jewish, wants to do what their faith tells them, but is unsure? It's a great. It's a great question. I'm. I'm a little bit. To be honest, a little bit at a loss to think about what's the one thing that says I should vote yes on three beyond what I've already talked about about human dignity. But I think you know if folks are going to look for inspiration in our tradition, it is um, texts and models that we have of Jewish people being an active part of the government and society in which they live. Mm-hmm. Right? We are um, a people who are who are told that we should be a part of society. That we are told that we should be paying attention to how our society treats folks who don't have access to power um, or who have lost access for power. Uh, And voting yes on three is saying, okay, trans folks um, are folks who don't have access to power traditionally. They're folks who have been traditionally marginalized, whose experiences are widely misunderstood. And so I'm going to go use my voice to stand up for them. And while I can't, while I'm grasping at straws for that specific verse, right, or that specific quote, um, that sentiment is surely is surely one that we see uh, in Jewish tradition and in Jewish community. I always think of, um, you know, the concept around tikkun olam and how we say, you know, you, you don't have to finish the work of fixing the world, but you can't abstain from doing it. You mm-hmm. have to take the first step. You have to do it. Even if you can't complete it, you have to do it. So... Even if just by doing this one vote, um, you are feeling like you're making an effort towards making the world a better place, then in the concept of tikkun olam, you're, you're doing the right thing. Totally. And I think we also have a tradition that lays out a way to envision the world to come. That's right. Right. Whether Whatever your understanding is of halakha or of how Torah uh, brings meaning into your life, our tradition tells us that it create that we should be envisioning what the world to come will look like. And in my mind, right, the world to come is one in which everybody walks through the world and feels safe. Everybody walks through the world and feels seen as amorphous uh, as that idea is. That everybody walks through the through the world and says like, okay, this is the world I can live in, right? I have the things I need to survive and to thrive. Um, and that we need to be a part partners with God in creating that world. And one way to do that is to vote, right? Is to vote yes on three and say this world, this perfect world is not coming right now, right? And we could, there's a quote of, um, I'm forgetting who it is, right? Who says the deal with the Messiah is that the Messiah is always coming, right? Right. We're not we're not getting to the world right. to come anytime anytime soon. But that doesn't mean we can't have have a bit of that world, right? Um, here on Earth. Right, we have a bit of it on Shabbat, mm-hmm. and if and if this if people vote right and these accommodations are upheld, I will get to have a bit of that every time I go into a public park, right? Every time I take a picnic blanket out and lay it out under a tree in the arboretum, right, and lay on my back and read a good book, right? I will get to have a taste of the world to come, and if these accommodations aren't upheld, right, then that will be uh, kept from me. So before we go, any final messages as we get so close to this critical vote um, for the trans community and, frankly, all of us who are concerned about human and civil rights in Massachusetts? Yes. I mean, first, let me just say one more time, vote yes on three. I feel like I sound like a broken record this morning, but also my whole life, right? Every 10 minutes, I'm like, yes on three, yes on three, yes on three. Um, If you have the time, go to Freedom for All Massachusetts's website, volunteer at a phone bank. You can do it from your own house. Join Keshet on November 4th. 
Uh, if you have a spare $18 or $10 or $5 lying around and you're like, what do I want, you know, donate to the campaign so that um, volunteers can be engaged and people can be out in the streets and maybe we can get some more ads and signs up. Uh, but the thing I really want to say is make your plan to vote. And then ask your neighbors, ask your family members, ask the people who you think or are even absolutely sure are going to vote what their plan to vote is. Because studies show that people who have a plan are more likely to vote. And we really do need everybody's vote in the ballot box this November. Well, I want to thank you, Rabbi Becky, for coming in and talking to us about this really, really important issue that we feel strongly about. And um, we're hoping that our audience uh, really can learn something from this podcast. And and uh, again, we encourage everybody to go out there, vote. Your voice is incredibly important in this and every election. So listeners, make sure you don't miss an episode of Jewish Boston's The Vibe of the Tribe podcast by making sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, or Stitcher, and follow at Jewish Boston on social media. Go vote. <laughs> <laughs>